0: 720 WGN, and uh, this is Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Uh, We've had Professor Leroy on from the University of Illinois many times, either on this program or even on Your Money Matters the other day, talking about unions. Professor, we're going to talk a little Roe v. Wade, and I know that's a difficult conversation to have for a lot of folks, but we're going to kind of stick to some basics and explain some stuff. You sound good with that, Professor? I'll, I'll give it my best, John. It's good to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's always great to have you on, and I appreciate it. I, I, I think that the best place to start, well, I don't even know where to start with this conversation, but this is obviously, and could be, and actually, before we say anything, this was a draft opinion written in February. Professor, we do not know if this will be the final opinion, correct?
1: That's correct.
0: And of course,
1: as people know from reading papers, This is unprecedented to leak uh, a draft opinion, and it has caused a huge stir um, in our nation.
0: Right. And the draft opinion, which I believe was a 5-4 decision written by Justice Alito in the majority, is a real complete strip of Roe v. Wade and essentially that it would be gone. And a lot of people have started raising questions that if this is the opinion, that a lot of other rights could be next. Let's break this down one by one. I want to start with the basic principle, Professor, of, you know, in the Constitution, certain rights are are given to us, right? We have the right to free speech, that Congress shall not abridge our right to free speech, free press, uh, religion, right to bear arms. But there's a lot of rights that we enjoy today that are not written in the Constitution. How does that happen?
1: Right. Excellent place to start. First of all, the draft opinion resets the judicial um, platform for determining what is a constitutional right. The draft opinion says um, constitutional rights are only referenced explicitly in the Constitution and or by reference to something called the common law at the time the Constitution was drafted, which would be a body of judge-made law. So it's setting 1787 as the platform. Now, to your observation, John, a Bill of Rights was enacted as a complement to and and a, a part of the Constitution to articulate our rights to free association, free speech, um, um, freedom to uh, worship as we see fit, freedom from uh, un- unreasonable searches and seizures, and so forth. So. Now let's get to the next part, like, where did our rights evolve from that document? And the key is something called the 14th Amendment, the Due Process Clause. In it, it has a limitation on states, and it says states shall not deprive a person, any person, of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. This repeats a, a restriction on the federal government, only it applies to state governments. Now, here's where we have contact in this, in, in this discussion. Starting in 1923, the Supreme Court looked at a case. It involved a man who was criminally prosecuted for teaching German. Um, he was teaching the Bible in German to a 10-year-old boy in a Lutheran church, and this was a minister, and he was prosecuted. And the law at that time in Nebraska prohibited any instruction in a foreign language. There was a lot of um, sentiment against Germans and generally xenophobia, anti-immigrant, and the Supreme Court, and this was a conservative Supreme Court, implied a right of privacy to teach a child in German, a right of instruction. Um, And so I think it's fascinating to start the conversation here because it's in a church. Uh, It involves an implied right that isn't expressly mentioned in the constitution mm-hmm. and that's where roe v wade comes out of a stream of precedent dating back to 1923
0: i have a couple questions uh before we go forward so before the yeah. 14th amendment and the idea that the federal that the states that states could not infringe on uh, any person's right to those three things you mentioned would states have laws on the books that would infringe on those rights but the the federal government said hey that's up to the states. Yes.
1: (laughs) And that was the point. Uh, The point was, after the Civil War uh, was won by the North, uh, then the political battle ensued to legislate their values into law. And if we remember from our civics or history class in high school or perhaps in college or wherever, uh, recall that we had black codes and recall that we had uh, a Reconstruction era in our in our history, but to keep a long story short, <clears throat> Southern states enacted legal disabilities that essentially made black people quasi-slaves again. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they couldn't uh, they couldn't work a job with white people. They couldn't be in a, a train carriage with a white person, it, it, and so forth. They couldn't be on the road after sundown. We had these sundown laws, oh, and yeah. so the point of the Fourteenth Amendment was to say that states cannot infringe these basic rights for all people. And at the time, the frame of reference was uh, recently uh, freed slaves, but it also was immigrants, basic and, and primarily Chinese immigrants, who were subject to all sorts of specific legal disabilities, restrictions. So that was the thought. And, and it really goes back to the Declaration of Independence, that we are all created equal. And so it was really – the 14th Amendment was an effort
0: to put that into a legal code. Okay, so the 14th Amendment does that, and then in 1923 you have a conservative Supreme Court pull out the word privacy, which is mentioned nowhere in the Constitution or in the amendments, and say this is a right that does exist, and the 14th Amendment and its due process means that the states cannot infringe on your privacy. Do I understand that correctly? You're working up the timeline. Great. Okay. Absolutely. Great. And this is, uh, we got a long way to go, but we've reached a natural (laughs) stopping point. So Professor Leroy, take a break, take a moment. We're going to do the news here in a moment. I, I, I just want, I know this may seem tedious to some people, and maybe you know all this, but as someone who I love history and I love talking law. As you all know here on this program, there's things still that I don't quite understand the evolution of how where we got to where we are, and I think it's important to understand that context as we have the conversation of where to go next. And we'll do that next after the news here on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on WGN. Well, looking forward to that conversation up next at 3 o'clock with well, us is Let's Get Legal. It's powered by the Illinois State Bar Association and we're joined by Professor Michael Leroy of the University of Illinois, continuing our conversation about about Roe v. Wade and how we got to where we are today. And professor, we were talking through the Fourteenth Amendment, the Due Process Clause, that essentially said that states had to honor, uh, or you know, had to be held to the same standard. I guess you could say honoring the federal laws, or at least honoring the rights that were laid out in the 1923 a case that uh, explicitly kind of laid that out. Uh, where do we go from there? Is how we establish, I guess you could say, "quote unquote" new rights, rights that were not laid out uh, word by word in the Constitution.
1: Well, I think the next point on our timeline is in the 1960s when uh, a case arose called Griswold versus Connecticut. Now, that deals with reproductive rights. By way of background, Connecticut had a statute called the Comstock Act of 1873. It prohibited any sale, distribution, or counseling related to contraceptives. Um, and... As the 1960s unfolded and we had different norms uh, and behaviors uh, uh, about sex, uh, what happened is uh, Planned Parenthood in Connecticut wanted to challenge this law. And uh, another way of putting it is, they wanted to counsel married couples. I want to emphasize this: this, this, their concern was providing counseling and, if necessary. Um, contraceptives for married couples they couldn't do this john under Mm -hmm. the connecticut law so this went all the way to the supreme court and the supreme court ruled that a there is a marital right to contraceptives and to contraceptive counseling and that no state could infringe that right there were two different theories expounded there um one came directly out of the 14th amendment which we're talking about another one said look if you if you take a Several of these amendments, the first, the third, and, 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 and the 14th, they all talk about the sanctity of your home. And Justice uh, William O. Douglas said, there's no place for the police to um, be involved in the bedroom of a married couple. I think that's a, a commonsensical idea that right. many people understand. But I have to say, going back to Justice Alito's draft opinion, he's going after that line of precedent, too. I mean, and that's, that's what is breathtaking and alarming about this draft opinion. Part of it is just it, it is clearly striking down growth, but it's also undercutting the evolution of these privacy rights. And so one implication if this draft becomes an actuality is <clears throat> you might see states start to regulate the sale and distribution of contraceptives. Perhaps they will limit it to adults. Minors can't get a hold of contraceptives. I don't know what form it would take, right. but he's really sending a signal to uh, to people who believe that contraceptive is sinful or inappropriate that it should be regulated and subject to criminal sanctions. So I wanna, that's the next point.
0: I want to pause you here because I want to know you know what in the draft makes you think that that is what he's talking about. Is he saying? Is it because he says that? Um, the 14th Amendment does not open up the door to all the rights that we've already had, only the ones that have, I think he called it like a lasting legacy, or it's been a big part of our country for a long time. And you would say that since contraceptive is, I mean, in the timeline of our country, a relatively quote-unquote new thing around the right same time as Roe, that that would not fall under that test that Alito would be setting for future courts.
1: That's right. So, and, And to answer your question... Uh, and this is just stunning to me and to a lot of people who have read this draft. It spends 29 pages talking about the appropriateness of overruling Supreme Court precedent. So let's just pull away from the mm-hmm. contraceptive argument for just a minute and just think about our constitutional system. Uh, the federal courts were set up to be the the provider of continuity in our system, they're the least susceptible to to change. They do they, things do change over time, mm-hmm. but you have the you have the Congress and the President who can react more in the moment, and so this is sort of a stabilizing influence. And now, when Justice Alito, on twenty nine pages, is saying, "You know what? Our precedents don't have the 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 value or the weight that that people have given it," it really opens up a Pandora's box. Like, well, what precedents count, which don't, and he anticipates that, and he says again. Use 1787 as your model or your framework, and that begs the question: How much has society changed from 1787? Some things are very much the same, but some things are very different.
0: I want to ask something, and this has been floated by a lot of people to say: Look at how crazy this opinion is, and you know, is states could then say interracial marriage is illegal, giving. What you've read in the draft of Alito's opinion, is that an overreaction, or could one make the argument that that would be exactly, that would fall under that test that Alito's talking about?
1: That's a valid concern. It's a valid concern. I'm not saying that there's the
0: political will to do it. I'm not saying that there would be cases that would cause states to do that. I'm just saying that if you were to follow the test that Alito has allegedly laid out in this draft, that, that theoretically a state could make that argument and win. Yes,
1: they could. And, uh, I, I would be a little more, I would lean in more to the possibility that a state could actually enact a law that prohibits interracial marriage. Uh, but, you know, that, that is a topic perhaps for another day. Yes, yes. But there's no doubt in my mind that, that he would greenlight that kind of approach because, um, you know, he, he would say that that was not a fundamental right. It was not a recognized right. Um, and and he would be correct. Uh, the question is, is that, is that the constitutional value you want for today? I would just add one more point. And this goes back to your observation about, like, why did, why did states have to be subject to a due process clause? And it was because, to, to make a long story short, states enacted uh, racially biased, in fact, racist laws, including laws that prohibited blacks from voting. And so, you know, his counterpoint is, look, if you want to enshrine these rights in law, just elect people to do it. And I get that. I respect that. I honor that. But it it turns a blind eye to history where there isn't equal access to a ballot box. And, And the democratic processes that he's placing so much faith in don't operate in a way to express those values as a right.
0: Yeah. The idea of like leaving things to states does have to so, hold some water in some places. In fact, the, isn't that what the 10th Amendment kind of lays out that things that have not been covered here are up to the states? Absolutely. And so boy, there's just a huge expanse of
1: things that states can do short of infringing on people's fundamental rights right. uh, so they can do that. Um, and. And, you know, they certainly can do that. Roe didn't take that away from states, and that's not where his argument is. His argument is simply it's not a fundamental right uh, to terminate a pregnancy uh, if you're a woman. Uh, and that that's his argument.
0: Yeah. We often say, and we've been saying a lot, this is Alito's opinion, as he wrote it. But if this draft is to be, and it has been verified, and it is signed, let's say if it actually happens, by five justices. I mean, he's essentially speaking for five justices Himself included, that agree. I mean, they sign on to this, right? They did, or they they, they have now. Maybe they'll change. Right.
1: Maybe he will change. I mean, I think you know, apart from my own feelings about uh, uh, how bad this would be um, as as a constitutional uh, decision, I, I think from the standpoint of the court's legitimacy. The court will hurt itself if it puts out this opinion and if it has five justices sign on. What might happen, John, I'm just guessing, what might happen is a couple of justices, um, and I'll be specific. I, I would I would wonder if Kavanaugh and maybe Amy Coney Barrett, Kavanaugh is the most open to sort of a, a more centrist approach. Would write a separate plurality opinion that would say, "You know this goes too far; we still believe in stare decisis, which is precedent, and we agree with the outcome here, but we, we we're not we're not signing on to the the full draft here you know that create could create a little uncertainty about uh, its precedential value. I would just note Roe had that that fragmented quality. it was a seven to two decision, but the majority was fragmented right. And so, uh, t- to have this unanimity, uh, it makes it all the more striking.
0: I want to make the argument that some pro-lifers make, and the idea being that yes, this goes against precedent, and yes, it's been in the in the rules for fifty years, but Plessy v. Ferguson was too, and Brown v. Board threw that out, right? Like that, there uh, that the Supreme Court can act in important ways, and pro-life people would say it's murder to murder the, uh, an unborn child and that the Supreme Court has its right to do that, if it sees it, that that is uh, the right thing to do. Your, th- your reaction sure. to that? Yeah,
1: uh, two quick reactions. One, uh, the time between Plessy and Brown was something on the order of 70 to 80 years. Now, that's most people's lifetime. So if the Supreme Court is fundamentally wrong about a decision, most people won't live long enough to see the court overrule it. That's point one. But point two, I'm going to lean into Justice Alito's argument and and accept it at face value. I I went through this morning, I went through the Constitution. It makes 49 references to person, just the word person. And, John, these um, anti-abortion laws define personhood. Most of them do. I, interestingly, uh, Mississippi doesn't, uh, but most of them, Alabama, Georgia, and others define personhood as originating at the time of conception. And so to get to my thought, I believe that if if this is the originalist view of the Constitution, that when 2030 rolls around and it's time to take a required census, that all pregnant women and their <clears throat> their unborn children Should be counted, and states like California, New York, and Illinois, uh, who have, I would presume, more pregnant women than states like Mississippi, count those count count their unborn children as persons, and you would have a reapportionment um, under the Constitution where more representation would flow to the states with more pregnant people. Uh, What I'm saying is, this literalism can really fall down on itself at some point. Do I think that's seriously going to happen? No, I don't. But that's the premise for this. So you, you mentioned the pro-life argument is Roe sanctions murder, I, and I under I, I get it, and I am sensitive to that. I'm saying if, if we're going to go the other direction now, then let's let's make sure that unborn children have their full constitutional rights. They they have a right to be counted in the census. <clears throat> they have a right not to be excluded from. Uh, SNAP benefits, you know, um, mm-hmm. food um, and welfare benefits. Uh, if healthcare is provided to to people uh, generally as a matter of law, then it should be provided directly to them not just after they're born, but in utero. Let's let's just be consistent about it.
0: Interesting. Yeah, and I think that, that you're making a point of where, you know, you go in these different directions, the permutations that come after it are interesting. Professor, I'm going to put you on hold. We're going to have time for one sure. more sh- uh, short little segment after this here, and let's get legal powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. I want to relay one caller who called sure. and said along the lines of, "We are people are overreacting because abortion will still be legal in the states that want it to be uh, legal in, which is the case, right, if this if this passes. So I, I think the caller Iridium was, what's the big deal? Don't overreact. It's not going to be illegal everywhere. So I think
1: that's a fair point. Um, I think that's a fair point. I, I would offer two sort of thoughts uh, in conjunction with that. One, uh, if the next uh, uh, election, if the 2024 election produces a majority of Republicans uh, in Congress and a Republican president then um I I would anticipate that there will be a federal law outlawing abortion. So the premise from the caller is valid for today. I'm not sure it's valid twenty twenty four and thereafter. Right. Uh, so you know that that's that's a possibility we don't know. The other is um watch Missouri and watch their watch their abortion law because they they have a version of an abortion law that's modeled after uh texas and 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 essentially it says if if a missouri citizen leaves the state for abortion services anybody so that would be in illinois Mm -hmm. it could be anywhere but you go across the river you come into illinois anybody who aids and abets that is going to be subject to a civil lawsuit and so now we are and and so we've seen texas now missouri likely others i believe and so again that sort of that sort of questions the premise that you still have a right and so forth. There is a harassing quality to these laws that interferes with the ability of people in states where this is legal to go ahead and provide services. So it's a good thought the caller has.
0: Right. I uh, right and but also you could say that Alito's draft opinion doesn't just say this is for abortion. It's it, uh, people are really up in arms. I think the idea of that this may throw out a lot of other precedents, which we don't have much time, Professor Leroy, but you looked into how often precedents get thrown out, or more accurately, how quickly they get thrown out. How unusual is it a precedent that's been here for 50 years to be thrown out versus one that's been around 10 or 20 years, let's say?
1: Sure. I I published a study in 2014. It's called Death of a Precedent. Uh, it's online if people want to check it out. What I, I found: two hundred and five decisions uh, rendered by the Supreme Court that the Supreme Court specifically, explicitly overruled. Now they have the Supreme Court has all sorts of ways that they avoid a precedent or narrow it, but these were explicit overrulings. By the way, I don't think I'm, I'm perfect on my count. I think I'm close because I was exhaustive and I, <laughs> I checked my study out with others. But he, here's the point. They last, on average, about 20 years. Roe is 49 years. I found only 30 decisions out of 205. So 30 decisions since 1808, when the first decision, um, 1810 was when the first decision was overruled. John, only 30 times has the court uh, uh, overruled a precedent that was more than 49 years old. And most of those were maritime cases that involved these, technical issues about sea law, like what happens if a ship hits another ship and so forth, and, and technology caused these delayed over-turning uh, of precedent. So right. just from a statistical standpoint, we are in a very strange place here if this holds up.
0: Right. And I will just make the argument that pro-life people will make is that this decision is worthy of that. And that's certainly an argument yes. that can be made, too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That That's their argument. And to that point, I would just simply say... Um, it, it, because there are other freedoms that, if we go back to where we started, we, we started in a church where German was being taught, a Lutheran church. That is a privacy right, and, and so I, in my classes, we read John Harlan. He's the great dissenter from the 1880s right. through the early 1900s. But my point is, what comes around goes around in constitutional law, and so if 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 Roe has lived, outlived its usefulness for the majority of the court. Uh, then okay. But, I mean, to undermine all the the, the value of precedent is
0: is such a
1: destabilizing force. Right.
0: You know? Professor, we're out of time. Thank you for joining us. Yep. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Take care. Yeah, take care. BJ had a call. I don't have time for it, but he said, why are two men talking about abortion? Where are the women? Fair point, BJ. I think we were talking more about the law. I'm the host. I can't control my gender right now, but I uh, I appreciate you checking my blind spot for me. Thank you, BJ.